Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 6th from a hot San Francisco, an unusually hot San Francisco. Uh, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it doesn't really matter which day of the week um, we're on. Themes of the show seem very familiar, very familiar, and of course they reflect, they're a mirror on the world itself. We seem obsessed with racism and how to overcome it, how to get beyond people who discriminate and distinguish between people of different skins, of genders, of sexuality. Um, it affects everything from our education system to our healthcare system. Lots of shows about that. I did a show last week with Patricia Turner on anti-Obama trash talk. It permeates the mirror. Uh, it, it permeates the media. Uh, this racism. This these divisions. Uh, how are we going to overcome it? It's not just America. We even did a show with the writer Lola Akimande Akastrom on Sweden. You think Sweden would be a little bit more unified and tolerant, but actually it isn't, at least according to Akastrom. Some people believe that we can overcome bias. I did a, a conversation with Jessica Nordel, the author of uh, the end of bias, a beginning, who is a social scientist, but it's very hard. We are today returning to that subject with another uh, man who believes that we can get beyond all this. It's David Livermore. He has a new book out, Digital, Diverse and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots and Overcome Polarization. David is joining us from uh, from Southern California, from San Diego. Uh, it seems a, a Sisyphean task, David. How are you going to overcome um, polarization? It's the thing which seems to undermine everything in our society, from politics to economics to culture. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, so thanks, Andrew. My, my unique angle is actually emerging from work I've been doing for 25 years and helping people bridge cultural differences, which might seem a bit adrift from the topic of polarization. But it suddenly gave me the sense as I was working with executives who were trying to figure out how to deal with their German or Chinese counterpart, that some of these same things we've been teaching companies and individuals in terms of reaching across international borders address some of these polarizing issues that you just featured in the lead in here. So uh, I, I'm not suggesting at all that my work is the end all, but I would say one of the tools that could help us with this is actually from the field of intercultural work that many of us have been about for a few decades. So explain, David, what that means. Your career, your business, your consulting group is in the business of um, confronting cultural division. What exactly is a cultural divide? Yeah. So, I mean, we get involved in everything from, you know, people who are frustrated by missed deadlines and punctuality to um, how you actually get a project to be 
going along in the same process in terms of what needs to happen in terms of efficiency. So traditionally, our work at the Cultural Intelligence Center has been very focused on more typical corporate international needs. You know, we can't get our supplier in China to follow through in the way that we want, and we're negotiating price points between Saudi Arabia and what we're looking at in India or something like that. Uh, more recently, our work has been more focused in the so-called diversity space, and you know, so dealing with these issues of racism and bias and all the different forms of identity. So, yeah, I, I would say our work, whether it's this more current emphasis on polarization or more traditionally on international differences, are these socially defined differences that become very real ways of what determine whether or not we respect someone, whether we think what they're saying makes sense, and ultimately whether we think they're villainous and need to be eradicated from our organizations or from the world. What happens uh, if you discover that they need to be eradicated from the world? What do you do? Just <laughs> kill them? Well, that's an interesting question because we have... Have you, uh, have you eradicated anyone today, David? I have not. Um, have but, you wanted to okay, eradicate so somebody today? Sorry, what was that? You wanted to eradicate somebody? Uh, not yet today, um, but two thoughts come to mind for me when you, you ask that. One is we have done a lot of work with military forces around the world, and they've taken me off my high idealist um, social science uh, ivory tower to sometimes say, are there times when you need to eradicate someone quite literally? And so it's, it's cautioned some of my approach to we need to empathize and we need to understand but for those of us in the civilian life um, i think we need to be pretty slow to assume eradicate even figuratively but there are certainly times where we may decide this individual is set in their mind they're closed-minded they have toxic rhetoric i just need to like for my own personal sanity um, at least figuratively eradicate them from my world so let's deal with the subtitle of the book. Uh, as I said, the title is Digital, Diverse and Divided, and the subtitle is broken down into three parts. How to talk to racists, compete with robots, and overcome polarization. So let's begin with talking to racists. I did a show earlier this week with Neil Wooten, who grew up um, in the Alabama mountains on a pig farm. His father was an overt racist and incredibly in, incredibly violent. Uh, I, I'm not sure if uh, his father could even read. Even if he could read, I'm not sure you'd be able to convince him not to be a racist. But what are you going to do to stop primitive peoples like Neil Wooten's father from being a racist? Well, and I, I don't know Neil and haven't read his work, but I would assume that it starts with to what degree does he genuinely understand his father's perspective so before we just immediately come in and well I, I don't want to make this a, and it's not fair on you but i don't want to make this a conversation on david i mean his father was bipolar so that's another issue but leaving aside that david you know as well as i do that there are many many people in the world who are simply overtly racist who don't like peoples of different skins mostly whites on blacks, but it goes both ways. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would hope that some of these ideas can help with that, but that's really not my primary orientation. It's far more to the middle of 
what I might call the accidental racist, the individual who would deny everything that you just described about uh, individuals if it were applied to themselves. I'm not racist. I don't hate people based upon the color of their skin. But, you know, by behavior, start to resort to a lot of these things that make passing comments. I, I think about a, a conversation with a very charitable, professional, well-educated individual I had a couple weeks ago who was just telling me a story, a personal friend. And as he went on with the story, he said, oh, actually, I don't know if you heard that so-and-so married this individual from South Africa. Uh, she's black, but she's beautiful. And then just kept going on. It's that kind of piece that, wait, 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 what do you mean black, but beautiful? How mm -hmm. do people like you and me engage in that kind of conversation and challenge the assumptions rather than somebody who's going out to a white supremacist rally? I'm not sure that's, there's a whole lot that this book is going to offer how you can address those individuals. So is your... Is your book focused on being able to talk to that type of person as opposed to reform them? Yes. Yes. With my hope being that you'll open up their thinking to see how they might need to reform themselves. But I don't. So, think so let's go back to that example. So you're sitting with your friend or colleague and they say, yep. oh, that guy married this black woman, uh, this woman from South Africa. She's black, but beautiful. What are you supposed to do? Yeah. So. I mean, I didn't pounce on him immediately. We talked to, he shared a little bit. You didn't more eradicate him, Sorry, David. You didn't eradicate him. I absolutely didn't. Um, though I, I did call it out a couple minutes later. I said, did you hear what you just said? And I repeated it back to him. And this was in and a corporate or personal context? Personal, yeah. This was you need personal. one of those um, James Bond style ejector cars. So when you're driving around and someone says something like that, you can just eject them out of the car. <laughs> well, now you're going to show my true colors because, you know, I can write these great ideas. There were times even in writing the book where I wanted that eject button. And I'm like, hang on, do I, do I believe in this research or not? In this case, I mean, when I brought it up to him, he just as I would do when I've had these kinds of things confronted me, he was initially defensive. Oh, you're reading too much into that. I'm like, really? Would you have said, you know, would you even point it out to me that they were white if they were? What's behind the butt? And by the end, he at least gave me, I'm going to have to think a little bit more about that. I'm not sure why I did that. So I wouldn't say I reformed him, but I at least gave him pause. And that that's what I hope more of us can do in our conversation. Should we? You know, a lot of people are very ambivalent and uncertain on this, David. You're talking to a friend. And they say something like that. Should you confront them immediately? Do you send them a note, an email afterwards? Um, what's the best way to deal with it? Is it best to let it simmer for a while to think it through? You're going to probably give me an eject button with this response. I hope so. Say. That's why you come on this show. If you're really bad, I'll eject you from the show. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, my answer is it depends on the relationship, on the situation. For the most part, I would say talk about it right now. I mean, a follow-up email, I'd be way too concerned how that's going to be interpreted. But, you know, I, I had enough trusted relationship with this friend that I think he already knew I, I wasn't going to like bring him up as an example by name um, on your show. <laughs> um, so I, I think in conversation and yeah, I, that one landed relatively well. I've had David, is there a generational 
element to this. I know you've got, how old are your kids? You've got daughters, right? Yeah, 23 and 25. So I have a 20 year old daughter and 25 year old son. My son's less interested in this stuff, but my daughter will pull me, will call me up on a lot of this stuff. Do you find that younger people are particularly sensitive and, and, and better perhaps at dealing with this, at confronting adults on it? Uh, so yes to the first, no on the second. I, I think way more sensitivity, way more uh, priority on if their employers aren't doing something serious about this, like why not and calling them out. In terms of, I can't remember the exact word you used, but are they more adept at it? Are they more skilled? Actually, our research has found that isn't true, that age does not predict whether or not somebody is more skilled at having these difficult conversations. And I, I think too often we've assumed that of the younger generation, then they, they just start spouting off the meme that they saw from their favorite newscaster and don't understand why that's just actually exacerbating things. So as, as you said earlier, you're in the business of cultural intelligence. Is this the core of the book, teaching cultural intelligence and indeed in a way selling your own services? Because a lot of people are rather cynical about not necessarily this kind of book, but the consulting business of people explaining how you can do good, how you can make the world a better place. Oh, and by the way, I charge for that. Yeah, no, very fair. Um, so uh, cultural intelligence really emerged for me initially as an academic, and I kind of stumbled into having a, a consulting practice. So, you know, I, I appreciate the cynicism. And while certainly cultural intelligence is the thread from our research that weaves through it, uh, there's not some kind of infomercial in the midst of it that says, oh, by the way, and if you join my mastermind for X number of dollars a month, I'll teach you how to overcome polarization in your workplace. Um, so no, I, the, the cultural intelligence work, uh, while I have a center that, that does do consulting and training on it, it's, it's held now by a community of scholars from uh, over 100 countries around the world. So this, this is a very kind of global academic approach to how we address this more than trying to pushing a particular financially um, based model that improves the way we get along. So let's move to the second uh, bullet in your subtitle, compete with robots. That's ambitious, David. And how much is that connected with being able to talk to racists? Does it require the same sort of skills? Yeah, I think I think that is actually what it is. It's that it's a similar skill set. So obviously, uh, competing with AI and technology and the, the digital nature of our, our context is very different than just racism itself. But the idea is more and more companies are realizing that these soft skills, like the ability to read people, like the ability to adapt in a situation, who know how to deal with me saying something like, it depends on whether or not you should respond in the moment or send up a follow-up email. That's something that a, a robot is not as easily able to adapt and be programmed to do. So that that's the meaning of that piece of it, of saying this agility that's required is the same kind of skill set that's required when you're in a tense conversation. At so you, you're, you're saying that this requires humans. Not everyone will agree. We had Bima Amanath on the show uh, earlier this year, uh, who believes that AI can finally solve the problem of diversity. And with AI, we will uh, be less racist and make sure that our companies and organizations reflect our cultural diversity. Can AI be used 
to talk to racists and overcome polarization or are robots by definition going to compound the divisions in the world today? Well, I, I think there's a lot of research that I'm sure you're very familiar with that says the challenge is AI gets programmed by humans. So we're programming our racial bias often into AI. But I'm, I'm not a Mr. Anti-AI. Clearly, uh, robots can play a part in it. But when you ask the question, as you did, can robots talk to races and overcome polarization? I, I would be dogmatic on that and say no. Like it's the nuance, it's the relational dynamic, it's the kind of conversation we're having right now that how do you have a robot be programmed to have this unpredictable, what kind of question is going to come or viewpoint and how do I adapt to that? One of the words that comes up very frequently uh, in this show, it's the E word. You've got the D words, digital, diverse, divided. The E word is empathy. How important is the idea of empathy in, in your thinking and in your book, David? It's important, but I actually prefer perspective taking, which is slightly different than empathy. empathy the P means, word. The pers I never heard that one. Perspective <laughs> taking or the PT word. Yeah, and actually, I first learned about it when I was working with the military, where they said, wait, 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 we don't want to overly empathize with the enemy or salespeople are sometimes like, we don't want our salespeople to end up more advocating for the customer than they do the client. So perspective taking, though, gets, I think, at the crux of the same way that empathy is often used. Like, do I first understand where my friend who made the comment about black but beautiful is coming from or where one of your previous guests father is coming from even if that includes being bipolar can i can i first attempt to see the world through your point of view before i then engage in challenging your perspective as being problematic what is it about you um dave that makes you an at least in your view a um uh, a vehicle for thinking about this stuff. You present yourself as a cuddly guy. Uh, you travel around the world giving these sorts of speeches. You're from the Midwest. At what point did you realize that you could help the world overcome its polarization? Yeah. So I'm originally from Canada on the East Coast, but did spend the last several years in the Midwest. Um, I apologize. Yeah, you 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 went to school in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very fair. It's had a strong impact on my more conciliatory Midwest nice behavior. Um, yeah, it's. <laughs> do, do we want to go there? In, in part we of the do. we do, we do. That's why you come on the show. Yeah. Um, so my my safe answer used to always be well. I was I had a job that had international work, and I was also doing academic studies. I had to figure out how do I take our work and manage people in different cultures. But that that's the safe answer. The more real one is I was an aspiring missionary who wanted to save the world, and uh, finally left the U.S. and Canada for the first time at 19 on a missions trip and even though I was doing work on behalf of the church, encountered people in Peru that were way more mature than I was told they were going to be. And I was sent off to save these natives. So that my, my baggage or um, platform started as an aspiring missionary who wanted to so teach So you, 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 you went to Peru as a, as a colonialist and you came back as well? Well, 
uh, a neo-colonialist at that point. I was I was still pretty convinced, but I, I think part of, I went to Peru being told at 19, you have more formal education than these 40, 50 year old seasoned leaders you're gonna meet in villages. And then I met these leaders, I'm like, crap. They know a hell of a lot more of what's going on in the world and life than I do at 19. And so it was the first kind of chink in my colonialist mentality. And then 20 more years of traveling in that. So yeah, I, I think my part in it is, yes, I've had a chance to travel the world, but the more you do that, the more you become less certain in your unique way being the one right way to view the world. Um, but neither does it make me Mr. Manila that's like, and I, I don't... I don't believe anything anymore. So navigating that, I think, is a, a part of what at least has given me a deep conviction about this topic. In, in a sense, you seem to me a little bit of a, a, a throwback, a little bit of an old fashioned American, the kind of American who used to go out into the world believing that you could bring your decency to make it a better place. We don't have quite as many Americans like that. Some people would say that's a good thing. Some people would say, well, America hasn't really made the world a better place. Uh, last week, I saw Apocalypse Now, uh, the, the great movie about Vietnam. We saw the damage that was done. I'm not suggesting that your kind of uh, do-gooding resulted in Vietnam. But how do you think your work speaks to the current crisis, cultural crisis of confidence in America about America's role in the world? Hmm. Yeah, I have been the full spectrum of what you said, because I, I certainly went out with the, we're going to save the world. And then there was a period, especially in the midst of PhD, where I'm like, we shouldn't be going anywhere. We shouldn't do anything. Everything we do good is actually doing harm. And then kind of landed somewhere between. We, we do need to steward well the power and dominance in the world. We do have a place in it. But it just it still grates against me. And maybe it's the Canadian side of my citizenship that when I hear people feel the need to say, and we are the best country in the world, there's no really there, there's lots of great countries in the world. So this is a good one that has lots of foibles. And we've seen that a lot over the last four to six years. But it doesn't mean there's nothing of value that we have to offer. So this idea of cultural intelligence is, is certainly interesting and credible, but some people would say, well, it's just more talk, more blah, blah, to, 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 to borrow some, some language from Greta Thunberg. And, and really, the big issues confronting the world are so important that why waste your time talking about um, overcoming polarization? I did a conversation with Bill McGuire, British environmentalist yesterday, who argued, and he's very credible, he's the author of a new book, Hot House Nation, Hot House World. We've only got 90 months to save, nine zero months left to save the planet. What would you respond? And again, I'm not claiming that your book claims to fix everything. But what about guys like Maguire who say, get over all the talk, stop blah, blahing, and just figure out how to fix the world, particularly on the environmental so I, I actually, my bias leans that way. Like while I'm, I'm using a lot of examples in our conversation today about conversation and seek to understand, but if we aren't focused on using that to solve problems that are affecting all of us, then I would tend to agree. It's a bunch of just echo chamber BS. And, you know, it tends to be, you know, the interfaith dialogues or multicultural circles are all the same people talking about let's have tolerance. So 
I would actually say our differences, if used well, are, can be linked to some of the best solutions that we come up with. I mean, that you talked about climate change. I mean, last week, the hot item in the news was debt forgiveness. Like, how do we, there are- Yeah, we did a show on debt forgiveness. Did you? <laughs> Which seems particularly absurd, but to me anyway. In which way? Well, it's not realizable in economic terms. It's not wise. And the guy I had on the show, his basic argument is we forget debt. People will, if we forget people's debt, people will have more money and that'll be good for the economy, which is only really ultimately in the long term, only going to compound debt, debt forgiveness because uh, the crisis of debt, because people will borrow more money to spend more. But that, uh, that's another issue. Uh, David, let's end on this issue of overcoming polarization. One of my, Favorite people in this space, young woman, a journalist, Monica Guzman. She's involved with Better Angels. They're a group designed in politics to bring people from left and right together to have better conversations. She has a, a really interesting book. I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. She seems to have learned to have those conversations with her parents who were who are Republicans pro-Trump and she's on the left. Um, how do we overcome polarization in terms of conversation? Is it like Guzman says, by simply talking to people who don't agree with us and simply acknowledging that they have the right to their opinion? I think that's the start. And I think even the step before that is we have to ask, are we ourselves genuinely open to having our assumptions challenged and are, are they? So if, if I absolutely know the other side is not interested in all in genuinely hearing my perspective, doing perspective taking, or if I'm not, then it's pointless. But if I am, then I find myself all the time tempered in some of my dogmatism once I hear somebody from the other side do it. So. Yeah, I think that's the first step. And then, as I mentioned a moment ago, really then saying, so what is a problem we both care about? And how do you look at something like higher education being inaccessible and say, I don't think the debt forgiveness is the way to go, or I don't think like the government taking overall of education is the way to go. Well, somehow then, is there a solution that the people who can actually do something about it can engage in? And if there isn't, you say that sometimes we have the right to yell at someone. What about argument, David? You're from not from the Midwest, but you have a, a, a nice, gentle Midwestern manner. You're from <laughs> what about the role of argument? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you calling me out on that because, you know, even my Canadian background was very much sorry, sorry, very polite in that. And so I can have this aversion to conflict. And because of that, I've sometimes written off people as not being open because they're aggressively arguing they may actually be far more open than somebody who gives you the very nice midwest nice not in assent and insider thinking you're absolutely crazy so yeah i'm i'm not too troubled about volume and arguing in that but you know if we start to have to attack each other as people instead of the ideas that's when it's like okay and this is just it's going downhill fast well, David, you have my permission to go out in San Diego and yell at someone. You'll probably be arrested down there. Then. No one, <laughs> no one yells in San Diego. Are you do you live down there now, or you just happen to be there? No, we live down here now, but a whole four weeks. So yeah, it's a fair question. No one yells in Southern California. Um, I'm or quite it sure like they it do. Never, it never rains in Southern California. Right. Or when people yell, they 
kill each other as well. Yeah. Very good. Well, well, an interesting perspective to use his P word, digital, diverse, and divided, how to talk to racists, compete with robots, and overcome polarization, an ambitious book in troubling times. Congratulations, David, on this new book. It's the, you've written many books, and how, how are you so productive, including The Curious Traveler? Uh, well, Is my kids will tell you, you I just keep writing like your ninth or tenth book? <laughs> yeah, I think it's 13th, but who's counting? Some of them You're only prolific. <laughs> well, congratulations on, on the new Thank book. Thank you, Andrew. The other 12 before that. We shouldn't say 13, maybe say 14, because 13 is supposed to be unlucky. What else are you reading, David, these days that might uh, make our readers wiser one mm. way or the other? Yeah, so uh, one book I just finished uh, came out a, maybe a year or so ago, How to Change by Katie Milkman. And because I am very interested in a lot of what you've been pushing me on, can you really change the way someone thinks? Can you reform them? So also a social scientist who has both the respective academics, but has written a very practical book. Um, I also recently read The Nickel Boys. Um, novel that uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with that really takes on uh, a reform school um, in Florida that is fiction, but not all based upon real events where young boys, particularly black boys, were, were abused and assaulted. So just a couple things that keep stretching my world and thinking. 